Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about the issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. Happy New Year, everyone. We're celebrating our first anniversary here at the Indie later this month, and we can't wait for year two. Today, I'll be chatting with one of the state's smartest guys, Mike Pequeen, who'll talk about the state of Nevada economy and what to look for in 2018. As always, we'll close with some to and fro on some issues of the day with myself and the Indies managing editor, Elizabeth Thompson. Today, it's all about drugs, but I assure you, this is a drug-free studio, so the conversation will be coherent, at least from Elizabeth. So let's get started with this week's headlines. It's been a short one because of the holiday, but we had a mix of breaking news and our signature in-depth pieces. The two biggest stories were Michelle Rendell's going deep on Attorney General Jeff Sessions' decision to remove protections for states that legalize pot and Megan Messerly's startling revelation that every doctor who attended a hearing on a new opioid law lamented its unworkable regulations and punitive penalties, or so they said. Michelle found that Democrats were quite upset with Sessions and not just pot king Tick Segerblum. Not sure whether it was more states' rights or their supplies possibly drying up. The Republicans were more circumspect, not wanting to jump on the administration and perhaps spark Trumpian outrage. After that Bannon book came out, though, you'd think the president might want to light up a joint. Megan's reporting on that opioid bill hearing found doctors raising all kinds of complaints about the new law. Not one single doc said the battle against the opioid epidemic was worth what they see as onerous provisions. Somewhere between their outrage, and some might see it as whining, and the usual legislative care with bill language lies a solution. We'll stay on this important story. Speaking of bad language, Michelle also reported on a bill designed to help ex-felons reintegrate that actually is doing the opposite. It has to do with a loophole that prevents the state from issuing intermediate ID cards, which is delaying former prisoners' ability to get work, find housing, or access services. I'm sure they want to chant, lock them up, to the gang of 63 in Carson City. Riley Snyder broke news on two fronts. He followed up on his scoop about Henderson giving away land for half price to the Raiders by covering a council meeting where the mayor and members acted as if they were genuflecting to a deity. A silver and black god, that is. Riley also wrote about Danny Tarkanian sticking with his pal Steve Bannon even after that book came out in which he trashed the president. Caught between a Trump and a Bannon is not a good place to be. Finally, Jackie Valley found Clark County School Board officials basically unconcerned about a lower bond rating. Maybe they don't understand that their grades and the rating that the rating agencies assigned to the school district are about the same, and they're both rapidly sinking. You can see all of these stories on the Nevada Independent site. We're a nonprofit news organization at the NevadaIndependent.com. And guess what? You can also make a tax-deductible contribution right there, too. We appreciate all of the support from our readers and, of course our podcast listeners. We'll be back in a moment with Mike Pequeen. We're back on Indie Matters with our guest, Mike Pequeen. Mike is the managing director and partner at Hightower Advisors, a wealth management firm. I should also tell all you listeners that he's also a manager of a lack of wealth firm, 
called the Nevada Independent, where he is a board member. He's also one of Elizabeth Thompson's clients. Mike McQueen, welcome. Thank you, Andy John. Matters. Thanks for coming on. I want to talk to you, uh, and I should tell our listeners, I want to talk a lot about the economy. No, nobody understands this stuff better than you do. Uh, and try to use words that I can understand. I, I would really, really appreciate mm -hmm. that. So let's talk about 2017 first, looking back. And, and let me just ask the general question, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners have different answers to this. Was it generally a good year for the Nevada economy? It absolutely was. This, this economic expansion, this recovery has been going on for eight or nine years now. No one likes the pace of it because it hasn't been fast enough. We're used to boom times. We had to get used to eight years of rehabilitative therapy where we were growing at a normal rate, a slightly below normal rate, but it was still growth. That's what we had. And it was good. And what about the argument that, that that we've seen a lot a lot here in that Nevada is kind of a strange bird when it comes to the economy. There's different strata of workers, and there's a lot of workers who have been left out of this good economy because of the way the Nevada economy is constructed. True, false? What do the numbers say? To some degree, true. We don't have a lot of knowledge workers. We don't have a lot of highly educated people engaged in high-tech industries. We have people in construction and in tourism. Both are very cyclical. They move up and down a lot, so we can't count on that a lot. And they're also industries where people are put on part-time when they don't want to be. That's how come we get what are called underemployed workers. We get people that, that want to work 40 hours a week but aren't being given 40 hours a week and are therefore not earning their capacity, earning their potential. Has the economy really, though, the, the actual undergirdings of the economy changed that much? In other words, we were close to 15% uh, unemployment back at, 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 at the recession's height, and now we're about a third of that uh, or, or so. There's been a lot of talk about how the economy is changing the, uh, with, with the economic development that's going on, with, with, with not just Tesla coming here and Google and Apple either coming or considering coming, but, but, but the focus on what you mentioned, high-tech economy. I mean, Hyperloop, uh, the, the drones, et cetera. But aren't we still just so overwhelmingly a tourism-based economy that we're, we're at the whims, of the vicissitudes of the national economy? We absolutely are. While all those projects you mentioned are glamorous and could lead to great things in the future, the majority of the jobs that have been gained back in the last nine years were in the service industry and the construction industry. And that's a fact and probably will be for several years to come. So essentially, it's the stuff that was hurt by the recession that was returned as the economy has gotten better, right? right? The, the, the cycle has turned in our favor. It won't always be that case, but that's what's happened in the last several years, yeah. So uh, as, as my friend Elizabeth put it uh, so aptly to me earlier, uh, uh, is winter coming? Is, 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 is a recession nigh? Is, is, are we going up too fast to, uh, uh, to, to another bubble in, in all ways? Well, if you can use a Game of Thrones reference, then I'll probably have to throw in a Star Trek reference and say live long and prosper at one You point. know what? Game of Thrones but, and Star Trek are favorite references on this podcast. Um, I, I, I like to think winter's coming. winter is coming, but I like to think it's not as severe as in, uh, as in Game of Thrones. I think that people get too worried about the cyclicality of things. We went through this horrendous thing in 2006, 7, and 8, 9, and that was unusual. It was unlike anything we'd ever experienced before. But the typical recession is not something that people should obsess about. It's, I get a cold every winter. It doesn't mean that I'm going to die. It's just what happens every winter. And then I go on to live my life. We will have recessions, and we will come back from recessions, and we will be higher and better and stronger and richer as a result afterwards. 
If you get the flu, you can die, though. Have you gotten the flu shot, Mike? I've gotten my flu shot. Yeah, Have I, you? I, I actually got mine today. Thank you for really? asking. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and everybody should get a flu shot. And uh, uh, the, the, the flu shot industry is not one of our sponsors. Uh, so I'm saying that actually cause I, because I uh, believe it and I'm old and I should get a flu shot probably. And, you I think? Think, and I think the Morning Joe show was shut down for a couple of days here. Weren't they? That's because right. Of, and yeah. Morning Joe was all over the every going to flu. every break this morning saying get a, get a flu shot. Uh, so the flu shot p- portion of the podcast now being over, let's go mm-hmm. let's go back <laughs> to, to, to the economy. Uh, so are, are people feeling good? I mean, everyone's everyone's talking about consumer confidence being high. People are people are optimistic. Are they? Consumer confidence is at an almost an all-time high. Uh, CEO confidence of big businesses is at an all-time high, and small business confidence is near an all-time high. We have so much confidence. That is a wonderful thing if you are a store that wants people to make spur-of-the-moment purchases. Uh, a lot of people say, well, there's nowhere for it to go but down at one point. It doesn't have to go down right away, but we are at a pretty much a high there. Uh, as an economic expert, you will recognize the phrase I'm about to to, to, to use and, and know where it's traced to. Maybe this is what was once called irrational exuberance. Remember uh, that? I remember it very well. The market was at a very low <laughs> level, and, and Alan Greenspan called it irrational exuberance, and it went on to double or triple from there. Uh, 25,000 that the Dow hit today, correct? We are recording this on Thursday. That is correct. It did. Now, realize that in, as the paychecks come out for the average working people in America in the next month or two, they will start to see higher paychecks as a result of this tax cut that was enacted. And that will, while we all know that those will sunset in several years, there will be more money in their paychecks immediately. And that is likely to give them additional confidence and additional spending power. So we could see 2018 Uh, get off to a great start for places uh, and businesses that need consumers to make discretionary purchases. Las Vegas is the ultimate consumer discretionary spend. No one has to come here for the most part. Everybody chooses to come here. We need them to feel rich to come here. It looks like they'll feel a little richer. That's a good start to the year for us. You know, you mentioned that. I love it when my my guests give me the segue to to another question I wanted to ask about, and that's this tax tax reform bill. And I'm sure you've analyzed this at a much more granular level uh, than most people have. Are regular folks going to really notice it enough, Mike, that they will say, you know, I'm going to go out and buy that TV that I wanted to buy, or maybe I'll get a new car now? Is it going to be that significant for most people? For most people that get paid every two weeks, it might be around $40 a week for the average, every two weeks for the average person, or $40 a week, perhaps $80 on a paycheck. So that could make a difference to people for discretionary spending. I don't know that they'll buy big ticket items, but they're likely to go to restaurants more. That is a, that's the first thing that does well, typically, when people feel richer. They eat out more. Uh, do you think generally the, the stories that, that we've been reading about businesses feeling great about this? You know, you saw some kind of uh, what I would call performance artistry by some of these huge uh, corporations. Uh, yeah, it's real. They're giving their employees $1,000 bonuses, but it was clearly choreographed with the administration to do this right after the bill uh, passed. Does, does that linger? I don't think that lingers. I think that that corporations are feeling very flush and they wanted to make a, a political statement. So I don't buy into the AT&T giving $1,000 to their people each and saying that that's, that that's going to be repeated. We're going to see trends clearly in, in wage growth or not over the next two, three, four quarters. And that will tell the tale. I'm not at all convinced that that's going to be passed down in the form of higher wages on a consistent basis yet. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the main question because I think it, it is accurate. I, I'm not thrilled, to be honest with you, with how my profession is reported on this tax bill. It is accurate to call it a, a, a massive corporate tax cut. But really the question is, what the, the, the one that you just raised, is whether that does trickle down to the actual workers. In other words, these corporations, they're unburdened by as many regulations they talk about. They got the tax uh, bill that Republicans have always dreamed of, of, of getting, first one in, 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 in three th- – three decades or more. Uh, what, what do you generally, I mean, you, you interact with these kinds of business leaders. What, do you think it happens or is it just going to be, you know, case by case basis? Well, there, there's a, a small number of things that can happen. The, the, the trickle down effect works the best if and when companies decide to raise wages. They don't decide to raise wages because they want to. They do it when the employment situation gets to the point where they have to pay more for, for workers. We're now at, at very low unemployment levels nationwide. You're starting to see some of that pressure on wages. They may have to do that. Uh, the next thing they could do is to go out and build plants. That's capital expenditures, CapEx. They could create new businesses and expand and create new jobs, and that helps communities. Also, they could do things that are less helpful to the individual in the street. They could buy back their own shares or they could increase their dividends. I believe that will get a lot of attention. And they can also engage in mergers and acquisitions, which really maybe don't help that many people overall. So all those last three are financial engineering things, dividends and and buybacks and mergers and acquisitions. That's probably going to take up a big chunk of this. It's yet to be determined whether or not there's going to be much CapEx uh, going on. Money has been very cheap. Any company that has wanted to build a new plant could have borrowed very cheaply in the last four or five years and done that. They haven't been doing that in great numbers because they aren't seeing great opportunities for that kind of uh, expense at this point. So I'm I'm skeptical. Yeah, it's interesting because locally here, there was this story right after the tax bill uh, passed, uh, done by Bloomberg, that said the Fountain Blue, which is one of the, uh, the shuttered projects on the Strip. Suddenly, the guy's excited, uh, and and they're they're going to get going. You believe him? Well, they may get going, but it's not going to be as a result of this tax bill. Mm-hmm. I mean, they bought it, and and it could have an opportunity for growth. Now, I'm 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 not an expert on whether or not that project will pencil once they put the money in or not. And as a Las Vegan, I hope that they do put money into it uh, so that we can get something going there. But, but it's not the tax bill that caused that. It's, it, and, and so th- th- this was, again, just uh, Trump uh, applause? I think that everybody in the world is thinking about how they can bis- position themselves best for political uh, favor. Yes, in this world, it seems political favor is a very important thing these days. But but it is accurate then to say that they could have done they could have made that announcement a month before, two years before that tax bill passed, right? Well, I don't know the entity behind it, but I don't know that they have any profits from any organization called the Fontainebleau mm-hmm. at this point to be saving any tax dollars on. Right, exactly. So I guess it could help their pro forma, their future projections. They might be paying a little less in tax. But I don't know that it's going to be that important for them. One thing, of course, that affects everybody is, is housing. And, and uh, our Jackie Valley recently uh, went up to northern Nevada and did a piece about uh, a potential bubble up there, how values have just skyrocketed up there. They're calling it the Tesla effect, maybe other reasons. It's happening down in southern Nevada, too. The question is, is it happening again? Uh, everyone remembers what, 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 what happened during the recession and, and the bottoming out. Should people be worried about that? They should begin to become worried about it. We are not where we were 10 years ago, but I, I think that the trend is there. I think her reporting is spot on. I had lunch with a very well-known and and, uh, very experienced CPA here in town, and he was talking about how he's seeing signs of of over-leverage and how people are becoming overextended, both residential and business-wise. When money is this cheap for this long, people begin to take advantage of it, and they chase um, every opportunity until they have to chase the less profitable ones. Buying that rental home at $120,000, it's now $270,000. 
you can still do it because it, it's still cheap money out there. But is that the best use of your money? So yes, I think we are still a few quarters or a couple of years away from seeing something bad there. And it doesn't have to be bad, but it's beginning to become worrisome. Can you do anything about it? You can raise interest rates. And, and, and do you see that happening? Well, we expect that the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates three times in the coming year, one quarter point each. That means that mortgage right now that's about 4%, four and a quarter, might be closer to five by year end, still very cheap money. So uh, should people be buying houses? <laughs> this is a commercial from the National Association of Realtors. Everybody should live somewhere. And the, the American dream is to still to own a home. I don't know that I would rush out and buy a lot of rental homes at this time. All right. I got to change my plans for later then. Uh, so uh, let me ask you a question globally, almost literally. Uh, I talked about the, the, how we're still uh, susceptible to what goes on, the caprices of the national economy. But to steal that uh, title from Tom Friedman's old book, The World is Not Flat, right? Uh, we got to talk about the global economy, especially when you talk about Las Vegas uh, and Nevada. What's the outlook there and, and, and how will it affect this state? Yeah, that's one of my big things that we, we tend to not look globally. This city is one of the most global cities when it comes to our economy, and we are foolish not to pay a lot of attention to that. So that's why I beat that that uh, dead horse often. But the fact is 20% of our visitors for our most important industry come from overseas. Nice thing for us, a tailwind for us, is that the European and Asian economies were slower to recover after the crisis than us. They're coming on strong now. Those economies, the Frances of the world and, and, and China still growing, those are helping us because those uh, economies are growing and they're making their people feel wealthier and they're coming here. So our share of visitors that come from overseas could increase and the amount of money and time they spend here could increase. It's, it's definitely an important tailwind for us and, and it's looking good. So if, if the economies are, are getting stronger globally, uh, uh, why wouldn't that also induce, or, or and maybe it will, some of the guys uh, here to invest there? In other words, the gaming companies that have invested in Macau, some of them now want to go to Japan mm -hmm. and Singapore and, and, and other, uh, other places. Does that continue to occur? Is that a good thing for the state? Well, it continues to occur. It really doesn't necessarily help us that much. Our, our major companies are obviously the gaming companies. They have done well. Three of them, uh, Las Vegas Sands, Wynn, and MGM, have done very well with their Macau and, in one case, also Singapore operations. And now they're lining up for Tokyo, should it become really uh, the thing in the next few years. And it helps in a sense that our biggest employers are more geograph geographically diversified. That makes them wealthier. They're probably going to have more cash flow. And if they want to invest, and if Mr. Wynn wants to build on his Elan property that he just closed on, he can do it with his Macau profits, and he has good cash flow in which to do that. And that's a great thing. Uh, but it doesn't necessarily bring profits right back to us, and our workers aren't getting direct benefit from that. It's indirect. So you, you talk to a lot of people uh, outside the state, too, and, and globally, and you have a good good sense of that, Mike. Um, what about the perceptions of Nevada? You know, when I first moved here, uh, uh, you know, almost uh, three and a half decades uh, ago, this is a very one-dimensional view uh, of Nevada mm -hmm. and Sin City and more gaming uh, uh, place. And do you live in a hotel, John, when, you know, all that kind of stuff. Has the perception of this state as, 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 as a real place? Not not a backwater as a place that's worthy of investment changed with some of these some some of these developments. It absolutely has, and I've been here all of my life. And when I started thirty years ago with the financial services business, I would go back to New York to meet with colleagues, and they would say, "Well, you're from Las Vegas. You're very you know think you're a good guy, but Las Vegas is a joke." And then maybe 15, 20 years later, they'd say, hey, um, you're from Las Vegas. It's still a joke, but where should I stay when I come out? 
And then another 10 or 15 years go by and we're in 2000 and we're in, you know, 2006 and they'd say, uh, Las Vegas isn't a joke. I'm coming out there and where should I buy a condo, which high rise. So now I have to amend it after what happened with Tesla. Uh, that really is a game changer. Serious site selection companies, serious manufacturing companies look at us very differently now. That is a big deal for us. And we are, it couldn't be more different than it was 25 or 30 years ago. So the stigma may have, may have changed a bit. We may be seen as a good place for, for major companies to come. But are we also seen as, wow, you should go to Nevada. They'll do anything to get you and they'll give you anything that you want. Are we seen that way too? I think that we're seen as someone who will, yes, I think that necessarily you'll, no guarantee that you'll get the package, but it's a place that can cut a deal. I think what we see from those same people, though, is concern about our educational system. You know, they don't just want the best deal. They also need the best environment. And they express at the same time as they say, look, we might get a good deal from Nevada. They've got some good opportunities. They've got a good tax structure. You know, our people are going to want to know about the schools. What can you tell us about improvement plans there? And that's something. And you said you've been here your whole life. I've been here for uh, more than half of my life. Uh, that perception hasn't changed that much. Maybe we can argue another time about whether the reality has changed. But the perception that the educational system here is problematic still is an impediment for some, right? It's the most lingering stigma that we have. Absolutely. And, you know, obviously the, the Governor Sandoval with his package and his plan to change, that's turning a battleship. It will take time. Uh, you know, hopefully you see green shoots and, and early signs of that, but it's going to take a while and that, that's going to remain an issue for our economic development people. So let's talk, let's wrap up this discussion, Mike, by, by get, turning you for just a brief moment into a weatherman. So when you look ahead to 2018, do you see sunny skies? Do you see clouds forming? Do, do, do you see, uh, what, what, what's your forecast for 2018? At the risk of saying something in a recording session, I, I do believe that we have a pretty good chance of a good recovery year ahead. We are in the eighth or ninth year of a recovery. They typically last six or seven years. So you could say that we're on borrowed time. Things that could happen that could hurt this, if China has a serious fall in their economy, if the Federal Reserve raises rates too much, or if we have some geopolitical thing. Everybody thinks North Korea, but I think more things like the South China Sea. Things that we haven't thought of could raise their head up and cause people to not want to spend money on a trip to Vegas. That's what I'm worried about. But I don't see a lot of those things as terribly likely at this point. So I would happily sit here a year from now, and I think we would have another year of recovery under our belt. We're going to mark down this date, and we're going to go a year from now, and you will you will come back. Mike McQueen, a pleasure having you on the Indie Matters podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, John. We'll be back in a moment with Elizabeth Thompson and myself talking about a couple of big stories this week. Welcome back to the Indie Matters podcast. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. I'm now joined by Elizabeth Thompson, the managing editor of the Indie and the person who really runs the place. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, John. So let's talk about uh, the two really big stories that we had on the site in our first week back uh, in the new year. I have to tell you, uh, I was actually surprised by one of these stories and shocked by the other. So let's talk about the one that surprised me. And that was, and maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, Jeff Sessions, the Attorney General of the United States, who hates marijuana. He has basically called it evil. 
uh, uh, he may actually have used that word, if I'm recalling correctly. He's essentially, uh, 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 without going into a lot of details, you can read Michelle Rendell's story on the site, is remove protections for, for states uh, that, that have legalized marijuana from potential federal intrusion. It's essentially leaving it up to the U.S. attorneys in the states. We have a brand new U.S. attorney, just started today, uh, in Nevada uh, as an interim uh, measure, uh, and we have no idea what she will do. She came, she came uh, from Texas, but suddenly this huge burgeoning industry is at risk now. Yes, not just in Nevada, but across the country. And we've got more than half the states now have marijuana legalized in some form, whether medical or recreationally. California just passed, uh, just made uh, marijuana legal uh, from a recreational uh, standpoint. So yeah, this U.S. attorney has an exciting first day on the job (laughs) trying to decide what will she do. And all the U.S. attorneys now will have to decide to what degree will they enforce federal law knowing that this document called the Cole Memo has essentially been rescinded. The gist of that memo was designed to let the states kind of run and regulate their own marijuana industries. And it basically instructed them that, look, as long as you're keeping marijuana out of the hands of minors, uh, as long as you're keeping drug money out of the hands of cartels and gangs, as long as we can't trace pot to other illegal activity in your state, as long as all the banking and the money is on the up and up, we won't come after you. That was the gist of it. Now with this memo rescinded, those policies could stay in place if these U.S. attorneys decide to proceed in the exact same way. If they don't, which is what I suspect may happen because different U.S. attorneys come from different political and ideological backgrounds, what we're going to get is enforcement that's not consistent in different districts, that's going to put pressure back on Congress to do something about this at a federal level. And, and you mentioned the Congress, and that's really important here because you know, we should tell people, people, not all people may be familiar with this, even though a bunch of states have either legalized medicinal marijuana or recreational marijuana, I believe it's eight states have, re- have legalized recreational marijuana, it is still at the federal level considered what is known as a Schedule One drug, which is the highest level, which means it's essentially a crime to be doing federally what is being done uh, in these states. And there's been this tension. The Obama administration, once Colorado legalized it, said we're not going to go in and raid your places. The Governor uh, Sandoval says that he met with Jeff Sessions. Senators have said they met with Jeff Sessions seem to get reassurances from him that this would not happen. And suddenly now this Pearl Harbor move comes, as I'm sure, uh, how they see it. And you're right, this is going to depend on each of these individual U.S. attorneys and how they prioritize that. But what we don't know, and maybe they'll be reporting on this eventually, is what signal Sessions may have sent to all of these U.S. attorneys that it's very, you know, he he may have told these senators it's not a big deal to me, uh, but we know from the past it is a big deal to him. Yeah, it sure is. And meanwhile, you know, there's a marijuana lobby now that exists not just on a state level, but federally. Four billion dollars in legal sales is happening across this country. That's not a small amount of money. That is expected to triple, quadruple, or even uh, more than that just in the next five years. Uh, if you if you look at all the statistics and all the projections that have been made, it's a burgeoning industry to say the least. So yeah, we don't know what Sessions has said kind of privately to the U.S. attorneys. This is very much an up in the air, wait and see kind of thing. Meanwhile, we've got a number of U.S. senators, our own Dean Heller, right in the middle of this because he is one of the senators who spoke to Sessions, made a recommendation that basically we'd really appreciate it if you'd 
let us regulate marijuana sales within our own state. Governor Sandoval was against legalization, but once it was legal, uh, both he and our Attorney General Adam Laxalt committed to defend the law uh, in cases where it needed to be uh, defended. Uh, And as you said at the top of the show, this is very much a state's rights issue. And you have a lot of conservatives and libertarians, especially in this country, who believe strongly that, look, that interstate commerce clause uh, that Congress loves to talk about and, and mess with is designed to regulate commerce across state lines, not within the boundaries of a state line. So what Sessions has done is probably made the social conservatives very happy, but there's this whole other wing of the Republican Party that's probably not too happy at all uh, with what they're going to consider uh, federal overreach in this situation. And you mentioned uh, Cory Gardner, who was, who was essentially, uh, 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 you know, he is, he is willing to go to the mat on, on this. Uh, uh, in Colorado. He is no liberal Republican. He's a very conservative guy, but he essentially thinks that, number one, that there's a principle at stake, and number one, two, that Sessions is going back on reassurances. And there was an amazing contrast. And I should say, again, we're recording this on Thursday, and and, and our reporter, Humberto Sanchez, got these uh, quotes. Uh, Amazing contrast between what Gardner said and what Heller uh, said. Uh, Heller's Heller's response is very tepid. I have to tell you that both Sandoval, uh, who was no friend of the Trump administration, and Laxalt, who is, were both also very tepid, wait and see, instead of doing what they might do and thought, let me just throw some yuck a mountain or something like that, <laughs> if there was a federal uh, yeah, intrusion into Nevada. Nevada. Right, or, uh, or, or, if the, or if they tried to come and regulate gaming, for instance, as they did in, you know, Grant Sawyer way back in the day, you know, told Bobby Kennedy to get out of his office. There's none of that outrage here flowing in Nevada as there was uh, in, in Colorado from Gardner in a more bipartisan way. All the Democrats here, of course, are frothing, uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, including Tig Segerblum. And there is a financial component to this that we should tell people. Uh, the, the projections are way above uh, or we're below what is actually happening now in this state. It's expected to get bigger despite the presence of the California yeah, $126 million in sales just in this first four, first four months. months, 20 million, close to 20 million in tax revenue. Multiply that by four. We're approaching 100 million probably within the first year in tax revenue. In a state like Nevada, that's not a small amount of money in the in the general budget. And especially when, when some of it's going to education. We are definitely going to stay uh, on top of this story. And, and who knows the story may, have, I should to tell our listeners may have even changed by the time you hear this yeah, uh, podcast. So please keep checking the updates on the Nevada Independent. We will be updating all of our stories on this issue uh, from now, probably through the weekend and well into next week at the very least. Thank you for that. The, the other story that I mentioned that, that was even more shocking to me than this, and, and, and I, it's one of those things where, where you're, and I know you've experienced this as an editor too, and this happens a lot with uh, with us, with our reporters, as we're reading this and we're just saying, wow, as, as we read it. This was a story, you know, Megan Mess who covers health care issues and has done a fantastic job for us, said she was going to a hearing on the new opioid law and the regulations and a bunch of doctors were going to be there. Well, a bunch of doctors weren't just there. They all essentially trashed this new law, which is, you know, maybe Governor Sandoval's and the legislature's 
they all thought they were going to get kudos for doing this. They're fighting the epidemic. They're trying to crack down on, on, on overprescribing of opioids. And uh, this is a national, maybe international story. And they, to a person at this hearing, these doctors said that either the, the, the law itself is unworkable the way that it's written or that they're going too quickly to punish doctors before they can adjust uh, to, to this. It was stunning, the unanimity of it. Yeah, there wasn't a single doctor at that workshop, and it was a workshop to talk about regulations. And just so the listeners understand, so the law was put into place by the legislature basically laying out different types of offenses legal offenses that doctors could commit that would be some degree of lack of oversight or negligence, you know, possibly inappropriate and possibly even fraudulent or illegal issuing of certain uh, substances. But it was left to the medical board to set the penalties, to decide, you know, how many times would you have to mess up for a certain penalty occur? What would that penalty be? The penalties that were discussed at this workshop were as little as a couple hours of continuing education, all the way up to having your medical license revoked. And one of the things that many of the doctors Megan spoke to said is they they felt that the language in the law, and we hear this all the time when new statutes come out of the legislature, that the definitions were not explicit or clear enough. So in their mind, the language is too vague. And at the same time, they're being expected to figure out this punitive system uh, where doctors would be reprimanded in in some way, shape, or form. Uh, And one of the other objections by these doctors was the tremendous amount of paperwork and administrative oversight that is being required of them now. Um, because now when you issue a subscription, a prescription, excuse me, for something like oxycodone or Percocet or Xanax, any of those types of substances, um, now doctors are required by law in Nevada. You have to review your patient's medical records in full. You have to review your patient's prescription history in the state database in full. Uh, you have to get written consent more than once at the 30-day mark and at the 90-day mark, showing that you've explained the dangers of addiction and overdose to your patient. I could go on. Uh, So the idea is to reduce overdoses and to reduce overprescribing, as you said, but the doctors are saying, look, this is just way too onerous um, between the paperwork and the extra time and then all of these penalties. It's very punitive. They're saying it's unworkable. I was surprised that there was no doctor in the mix who even tried to defend uh, the law or what was being uh, asked of them, maybe we shouldn't have been surprised um, because this does uh, affect them both financially and in terms of the way they run their lives. Uh, But it, it certainly is a stunner because the governor has made this a major priority in the state of Nevada. He stood firmly behind and, in fact, was one of the major drivers of that legislation. And now we basically have the Nevada Medical Board doing a major pushback. What's interesting about this, and, and, and you got to a lot of issues uh, there, is that they certainly consulted with the medical community uh, when, they, when they were uh, forming this, this bill. Uh, physicians, others, experts testified at the legislature. There may be doctors who are willing to, d- to defend this. I would guess that the governor's office was on the phone calling them as soon as they re- yes. read our Please story. call the Nevada Independent <laughs> and tell them what you think. And, and so, uh, and some of this may be financially motivated. Some of it may be, you know, purely motivated. They're worried that, that, that this could have uh, unintended consequences. But there's two other stories here that I think uh, are, 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 are going to come out of this. Uh, and we should tell people that Megan is going to stay on this and she's going to do a deeper dive into all of 
this. And this is going to be an ongoing and, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe the most important story in some ways in this state. First of all, the Board of Medical Examiners uh, has been accused at various times in, in its existence of essentially protecting bad doctors, very rarely imposing harsh penalties, very rarely revoking licenses. If anything really calls for a license to be revoked, it's a doctor who is uh, uh, maliciously or, 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 or negligently uh, prescribing these kinds of drugs. And so to, the fact that the, the, the Board of Medical Examiners is going to have immense power here, I think is going to be a story uh, to watch and will be interesting to see if the governor or legislators speak out. But it also brings up a story that I think a lot of people listening, and I didn't really fully realize until recent years, is that when laws are passed by the legislature, no matter what their intent is, they can they can be subverted by regulatory bodies lobbied by outsiders, medical examiners board lobbied by physicians or pharmaceutical companies, uh, you know, a tax commission lobbied by developers or gaming companies to change things. This is, laws are made, but they but they can be undone or changed by a regulatory body, and and you've had very few legislators who have really policed that, and that that's a big story in this state, uh, and and certainly the medical examiners and how they handle. Uh, th this this opioid law is going to be a huge uh, uh, example of, uh, to watch on that. Yeah, it's was it was notable <clears throat> to me even when I first moved to Nevada two decades ago when I learned to my surprise, shock, and dismay that our legislature very often puts laws on the books that leave all kinds of unanswered questions. And it is through the regulatory and administrative code, as you say, uh, and this is left up to uh, these commissions and boards. Uh, basically, they are agencies that are sanctioned by the state or that are part of the state but structure, unelected. but they're unelected individuals who, as you say, are sometimes influenced, uh, not only by their own agendas, um, but also can be influenced by outside parties, including uh, lobbyists. And so it's, and this, uh, in this particular situation, it's particularly shocking and concerning because human lives are literally... Uh, at stake in this uh, situation. Uh, I think what we may see is there's going to be a certain contingent, uh, contingent of doctors who just stop prescribing pain meds altogether. That's one way around this whole debacle. Uh, but in the meantime, yes, this will have to be worked out. I'll be curious to see how much Governor Sandoval decides to get personally involved in getting this whole thing straightened out. I think you're absolutely right, and that's a great point. It's a great place uh, to leave this discussion of these two very big stories. Please uh, check out the NevadaIndependent.com. We'll be following up on both of them. Elizabeth, thanks for coming on uh, today. And that is all the time we have for this edition of the Indie Matters podcast. We want to know what you think. If you have ideas, criticism, even praise, yes, praise, email us at ideas at the nvnd.com. Check out the site. I'll repeat the URL once more, the nevadaindependent.com. You can also go on iTunes. You can subscribe to this podcast. You can rate it. We can also find us on Google Play and other venues too. I want to thank again Mike Pequeen uh, for being here. I also want to thank our always wonderful hosts here at KUNV on the campus of UNLV. And as always, many thanks to Joey Lovato, our fantastic producer, who makes all of us, or some of us, Elizabeth Sound. Podcast smooth. That was very smoothly done. Maybe the most smooth podcast smooth in the history of Indie Matters. Welcome to 2018, folks. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm John Ralston. We'll be back next week. Hey.